This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a special edition. This week, I hosted a town hall meeting for the NAACP. It's part of a series of town hall meetings that will look at the fight for justice and accountability. We gathered a group of activists, thought leaders, and policymakers to discuss America after the Chauvin verdict and the continued fight for accountability, justice, and reform. Here is that town hall meeting. I'd like to introduce our moderator, award-winning journalist, our friend and partner, Mr. Ed Gordon. Thank you, Abba. Greatly appreciated. As Abba said, this is the first of a special series of town hall meetings we'll be producing in the coming months as we look at the issue of justice and accountability. I'm coming to you live tonight from the gathering spot in Atlanta, Georgia. Tonight, we're talking about after the Chauvin verdict, what's next? We gathered a number of people to discuss this, and we want, of course, to hear from you. Abba just told you, let me reiterate, if you have a question, join us. Join us tonight. Call us, 866-757-0756, and then you can press star three. That's 
657-657-0756 and star three will get you to us. The direction of where the nation goes will be dictated greatly by what happens legislatively with the proposed George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Two of those who are on the front lines of getting that enacted, enacted join us now. Representative Karen Bass of California, who introduced the bill in the House, is with us. And Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey is also with us. He is one of those who is attempting to navigate that act through the Senate. Welcome uh, to you both. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much for having us on. Yeah, let me start by saying that there's been a lot of optimistic talk over the last uh, couple of days in terms of getting this uh, act into uh, a law, moving it to the president's desk. Representative Bass, let me start with you. How optimistic do you find yourself this evening? Well, uh, I'm actually very optimistic. It was helpful for the president to weigh in the way he did uh, last night. But I will tell you that one of the main reasons why I'm so optimistic is because I get to work with Senator Booker and working with him and his leadership in the Senate with Senator Scott. uh, It gives me a great deal of confidence because all of us have been impacted by police issues in our lives. We know that this is a common experience that we all share. And I think when there is political will, when there is political will, there is a way. And I believe that we will deliver this bill on President Biden's desk. Senator Booker, we heard uh, from Senator Tim Scott last night. There were those who um, heard his message but didn't leave as optimistic as they thought. I understand I've been getting texts and tweets and calls all uh, day long with meetings going on on the Hill. Uh, let me ask you the same question. How optimistic are you specifically with the idea that um, Senator Scott will be able to find those 10 all-important votes uh, in the Senate that is needed? You know, what, what does Lift Every Voice and Sing uh, say? You know, full of the hope the dark past has brought us. We have seen challenges and made change. And we are we are where we are. And I was just sitting uh, with some of the families of uh, murdered uh, African-Americans today. Um, uh, their blood, their sacrifice, as well as that of so many activists, have helped to move us into a position where we can possibly get something done. Uh, the activism of after the murder of George Floyd, we've seen for almost a year now, with every major community in every single state, uh, people taking the streets and demanding something getting done, that has shifted the possibility. And even in the last conference, when things didn't go well, I'll tell you, Karen Bass and others never stopped working here in Congress to try to move this forward. And so right now I'm, I'm, I'm a prisoner of hope and uh, the progress that has been made uh, is, is promising. Nothing is for sure, uh, but we are, uh, I think, getting closer and closer to getting something done, something that will make meaningful change and will be real reform. And I just want to caution folks though, and uh, and I know Karen will share this with you. We can get some really good things done at the federal level, thanks again to the continuous unyielding activism of so many. But that's not going to still be enough because we have a lot more work to do. This is an important step should we be able to get it done on a much longer journey. Uh, and right now, though, I, I, I share Karen Bass's sense of hope that we, that we can make something happen in the coming months. Let me ask you this, Senator, before I go to Representative Bass again. Um, the optimism may uh, not be uh, as greatly shared by those in the street who find frustration almost on a daily basis. I don't want to hold you to this, but if you were to put a timetable on this, 
What would be, what would we be looking at when you could definitively say, yeah, we've got this over the hump? Well, again, I, I just want to be clear because, you know, Karen and I are, are of the community. We don't just represent folks, uh, but these are communities in which we live, in which we, in which we work. Uh, you know, we are not going to end mass incarceration, a mass incarceration problem. We have, this bill is not addressing the fact uh, that the war on marijuana, remember 2019, there was more marijuana arrests in America than all violent crime arrests combined. And blacks were almost four times more likely to be arrested, even though their usage rates are the same. And most of those arrests, by the way, were for possession. There's a lot wrong with the system that should cause more than this frustration that really are things that have been a burning purpose for our communities for a long time. What this bill is, so people understand, is bringing real accountability uh, to policing, another real measures of accountability to policing. And that's everything from banning certain practices. We are looking to ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants, the things that led to the deaths of Eric Garner and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. We're looking to uh, raise the standard or lower the standards of accountability for police officers, address things like qualified immunity. We're looking to open up American policing uh, because sunlight is a great disinfectant and have reporting standards for use of force uh, and more. There's a lot of things in this bill that will make real progress. But again, this is part of a larger picture of the work we still have to do. And so I, I just want folks to understand there is hope within these legislative efforts that we will make real and meaningful steps. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be working in partnership with Karen to try to move towards a conclusion soon. Uh, yeah. I don't think it's overly optimistic to think uh, that May 25th is a, is a reasonable date. Um, and, and that's what we're working uh, as hard as possible to get to. That, of course, the date that the president asked for the anniversary of uh, George Floyd's murder. Representative Bass, uh, perhaps the sticking point compromise is the mother's milk in Washington. There are those who uh, are suggesting that qualified immunity can't be put on the table, particularly the progressives in your party. Where do you sit on that? And, and do you think that that is in danger of being a sticking point? Well, I mean, it's one of the key issues that we're talking about, but the bill is pretty comprehensive. There's a, a lot in the bill, you know, qualified immunity and reducing the standard to prosecute an officer are two measures of accountability, but we're also talking about raising the standards. I mean, it's pretty shocking to think that we have 18,000 police departments in the country and none of them have any uniform standards or accreditation. And so you go to the barber, your barber has more that uh, he or she has to go through to, to practice their profession than the person who has the power to take away your freedom and your life. And if you just think about the medical profession, if you had a doctor that made mistakes all the time and people died, what would you want to do with that person? You wouldn't want that person to ever practice medicine again. And how you can be a police officer for 26 years and make a mistake between a taser and a gun that killed Dante Wright, you know, it's examples like that that we address in the bill in the, in the terms of having a registry for officers that have done daily, that have done daily things, deadly things. Like if you think of Tamir Rice, Tamir Rice was killed by an officer who had been fired by a nearby department for being unstable and having a propensity to violence. We want to make sure that officers like that 
are in a registry and communities know about them. If you think about Derek Chauvin, Derek Chauvin had 15, 16 complaints. He should have never been a police officer. Or you think about the three officers that were with him. In our bill, we say that those officers have a duty to intervene if you see your partner brutalizing someone. So there's a lot in the bill. There's a lot in the bill in terms of comfrey, in terms of uh, police practices, in terms of accountability. And then one feature of the bill I think is really important, and that's the part of the bill that provides grants to communities to re-envision public safety. Because part of the conversation that's happening in our country is really questioning what do communities need to be safe. I don't think communities need militaries. And so we want communities to envision what public safety is, and then to fight for those safety net resources that are going to be in the infrastructure plan, for example, that communities can begin to heal and restore programs that were decimated. And then when things fall through the cracks, we expect police to come and clean it up. So a lot we need to do. This bill is a step forward, but we have far more to do. Before I let you both go, let me ask you uh, to give us a sense of what you'd like from the rank and file, if you will, from, from voters and citizens to help you put this over the top. Representative Bass, I'll start with you. What do you need from those who want to help out? Pressure, pressure, pressure. Please call the Senate if, if my uh, colleague doesn't mind me saying that. <laughs> Please pick up the phone, call Senate leadership. Uh, we need the activism, just like the senator said. It's because of the activism that we're even having this conversation. Please keep it up. Always peaceful. Senator Booker, as always, you've been very uh, vocal in terms of making sure that your constituents understand that they are part of this game, that, you know, it can't be played without them. What would you like to see from them? I, I guess I, I just want to thank folks and, and, and let's continue. We, this is not a time where Black people can ever afford to surrender to cynicism about what's going on. Remember, they blocked lynching bills for a century. They blocked civil rights legislation. The longest filibuster in Senate history is right here in the Senate over civil rights legislation in the 60s. We have seen every kind of imaginable procedural uh, roadblock, uh, um, you know, obstinance, resistance, defiance, uh, Wallace standing there, segregation now, segregation forever. And yet we persisted, we showed resilience, we showed perseverance and we made change. We bent the arc of the moral universe. We are in a crisis right now, a crisis of policing that didn't start with this generation. It goes back to the Kerner Report. It's why Martin Luther King talked about it uh, on the March on Washington. Police issues go back to slave catching days. And we are trying to make it more accountable. We cannot give up. This is a moment. Let us seize it. Let us continue our activism, continue and persist. And when we pass this piece of legislation, just like the 64 Civil Rights Act, just like the 65 Voting Rights Act, just like the 68 uh, uh, Fair Housing Act. We did not stop. We kept the work going. So please, no cynicism, no surrender. Let's continue the pressure. Let's continue the activism until we can say, truly, we are a nation that lives up to its promise of liberty and justice for all. Well, I thank you both, as always, uh, not only for joining us, but uh, keeping up the fight as it uh, unfortunately continues. But it is uh, a good fight, and we will stay in, as John Lewis says, uh, good trouble until uh, we get what uh, we all deserve. I thank you both for joining us. Well, can we both thank uh, Eric Johnson, or President Johnson, I should say, has been. Yes. Everybody should be grateful. We have, and he is not 
witnessing this. He is a part of this uh, process, and he's a partner of ours. We're, Karen and I know we're both really grateful to have him uh, with us. Very much. I He'll second that. <laughs> we second that emotion. He'll be joining us in just a few. I thank you both. Greatly appreciate it. Good to see you both. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, too. Even if the act passes the Senate, the question of reform within the rank and file is a big one. How readily will officers accept change and how long will it take to have systematic change occur in those departments that have long been stained? That's the question. Joining us now, two women who know firsthand what it's like to be in the streets. Cheryl Dorsey is a retired sergeant of the Los Angeles Police Department. Carol Horn, a former Buffalo police officer, made news when she was fired after stopping a colleague from using a chokehold. Welcome, ladies. Thank you for joining us. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you both, and uh, Ms. Dorsey, I'll start with you. Many people are talking about whether we are in a seminal moment, um, you know, the time for change. Do you think that, particularly if this act becomes a bill, that we are in a spot to see systematic change, not individual change in a department here or there, but true systematic change. Uh, I'll start with you and then we'll move over. I, I say no, you know, because listen, uh, police chiefs have tremendous autonomy and, and accountability is really the key issue here. And so we can have all the legislation, we can have all the rules and policies that we want, but if police chiefs neglect to hold their officers account accountable, do we continue to have the same thing? And listen, really, they're doing quite the contrary. There are police chiefs who uh, are passing out gift certificates for dinner at local area restaurants when you abuse black and brown folks. Here in Los Angeles, we have on the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department armed deputies who get tattoos and have celebratory uh, barbecues when they hurt, harm, and kill folks. And so when you have a sheriff like Alex Villanueva who's aware of this and does nothing, how then are the people in uh, D.C. miles away going to legislate something that um, they can't put their hands on. Um, so let me just further that very quickly and ask whether or not you think that that will assist, though. I mean, it, it, there's so much optimism with this bill going through. How big of a, a, a hurdle will that knock down, do you believe? Well, listen, so I'm speaking as a patrol officer, right, because I did that for 20 years. And I can tell you day to day, that's not going to affect me and what I do. And as they reallocate money, as they talk about defunding the police, and as they pass all of this legislation that sounds sexy, it is not going to change what I do. Training is not necessary, but I don't say no to it. Even that is not going to change what I do day to day, what I put on that uniform. And we've seen evidence of that in uh, officers like Derek Chauvin, who've amassed 18 personnel complaints. You think he wasn't on a list? You think they didn't know who he was? Ms. Horn, let me move to you as one who actually did what we're asking officers to do, and that's change a culture, change the idea of this silent blue line that has existed for so long. You saw what it cost you personally. Uh, not only were you fired, uh, luckily you have regained back pay and pension through, through the courts, um, but you lost out on the pension that was so close. How realistic is it uh, for us to believe that officers are going to kind of see what we saw, the anomaly in this verdict, and that is stepping up and saying, yes, my fellow officer was wrong. 
Well, that is the reason that I even wrote the law in the first place. But like Cheryl said, you have to change this whole system. Um, we can change the laws all we want, but we can't change their hearts. And the first training that we get is home training. We don't know what they're learning at home, but some of them are bringing it to the job and taking it out on, on citizens. And so we can change the laws, but we also have to change the system. And in my case, where I went against the blue line of silence, and then you had the lawyers who backed me, and then you had the judge who also made a decision to back me. It's like we're chipping away at that system, but we have to have more than just us. We have to have it nationwide so that we can have change because otherwise, We'll be in the same boat next year and the year after and the year after. And as even with the law passed, you still have police killing people. Yeah, we should note that you've pushed through uh, you and others. Uh, Carol's law, which requires it was just signed in uh, use in Buffalo, New York, which requires police to step in when colleagues use unreasonable force. Let me ask you both. It is a dangerous and um, sometimes unforgiving uh, job. Not all shootings are equal. We see in Chicago and Columbus those that question whether or not that was a fair use of deadly force. Um, talk to me about, uh, Ms. Dorsey, how you see the idea of making the public understand that uh, there are times that, um, you know, requires that split second thought of do I shoot or not? Well, listen, there's always going to be a contingent in society who thinks police officers shouldn't use deadly force. And so I, I understand that. And, and there are times when uh, deadly force is necessary, but it should only be used as a last resort, as we're taught. And that means that's, that's you, after you've tried everything else that you have at your disposal before you get to the deadly force. And we're not seeing that. And let me just say this real quickly about uh, what happened with Derek Chauvin and that blue wall of silence that everybody is all excited about, because those were police administrators. Those were command staff officers, a police chief, his commander, his uh, lieutenant, and a sergeant who testified. Those weren't patrol officers. And I think we need more of that. I think that was what was so groundbreaking was to hear from an administrator. And I think if we hear from police chiefs going forward, call them into court and ask them, is this the kind of training you're providing? And is this what you expect of your officers in the field? We might see more success. Ms. Horn, I ask about um, qualified immunity when we were talking about in the earlier segment of the George Floyd Act. Uh, how important is qualified immunity knocking it down to changing the system in your mind? Qualified immunity is being abused. Um, so I think that in some cases, it, it, when force is necessary, that it could be used then, but it's been abused. So if we change that whole, the whole system, and I think that a good thing that we could do is have police officers have bonds. Just like you get car insurance, once you get so many um, citations against you, nobody wants to bond you. They don't need to be an officer anymore. So that's way, one way to do it. And I agree with defunding the police. I think that those funds should be reallocated into the community because you should not have to go to jail in order to get the services that should be in your community anyway. Let me uh, give out the number for questions again. That's 
0756, press star three if you want to join us and uh, ask a question, 866-757-0756, star three. It would be foolish to assume, uh, ladies, that uh, whether or not this bill gets signed in on the anniversary of uh, George Floyd's death or whether or not uh, we see uh, laws enacted like uh, the law, uh, Ms. Horn, you were able to push through in Buffalo, that we're going to see the rank and file change automatically, that we're going to see some overnight difference. Um, let me start with you, Ms. Dorsey, in terms of optimism. Give me a calendar, if you will. Can't hold you to it, obviously. But if we were to see real change, how long do we have to wait to really see, see systematic change across the board, you well, you know, I, I hate to be a Debbie Downer. I'm a realist. And I just, you know, I say this all the time, not in my lifetime. It's so inst it's so systemic. It's, it's institutionalized. It's top down. And when I say top down, I mean police chief. Listen, every chief was once an officer. Every sheriff was once a deputy. So when they get in front of a bank of cameras and clutch their pearls and act like they're surprised by something that their officers are doing, they're being intellectually dishonest. And so while we've heard from uh, Tim Scott, uh, who's working with Cory Booker, I believe, on this uh, reform uh, that uh, qualified immunity is a non-starter. There's talk of maybe holding a police department accountable. But what do you do to deter the officer? Because unless and until the officers are held accountable, qualified immunity, we're going to continue to have this. We have a senator here in California, Bradford, who's trying to decertify officers. If they won't jump on the qualified immunity bandwagon, how about we just decertify them, take their license to be a cop away so they can't move from department to department. Let me ask you, Ms. Horn, when we, when we start to see where it almost becomes one of those things um, that is daily, uh, we should note that there are other shootings that never make the news that we don't hear about. So when we hear about the shooting that makes the news, like Mr. Brown in North Carolina, we get sickened, but we would really be sickened if we knew and understood the sheer numbers of shootings not always causing death, but the sheer number of police shootings that happen across the board. Do you think that people are still naive to how, how often this happens? I think um, because of the George Floyd case that they have um, woke up to it happening because um, we were being gaslighted before to make it seem as if it was our imagination. Um, another thing is officers that are there who, who do and say nothing, they are definitely part of the problem. And it even goes further than the, the police chiefs because you have mayors who are also in on the bandwagon of doing the cover-ups. And that's part of what Cario's Law is. It um, goes after an officer if they do falsify reports or anyone that's covering it up. Ms. Dorsey, let me ask you, you know, we, we hear uh, and see too often the vilifying of the victim. Um, you know, we talk about the talk that we give our children. Um, but what would you suggest? Because it seems as though there's very little one can do if you just run across the wrong office. Whether you keep your hands on the steering wheel, whether you turn on your light inside, whether you roll down your windows or do whatever. Um, what would you suggest in this case? And uh, is it simply uh, the role of the dice, depending on what cop comes to your window? It's absolutely the role of the dice because you don't know who you're going to get in that grab bag. But what I say to uh, this audience is what I say to my four sons, and that's comply. Live to uh, survive that police encounter. There are policies and procedures in place. 
Uh, you can file a report. Uh, I, I need you to come home safely. That's the goal, to survive that encounter and go home safely. And we understand now since DOJ uh, under this new administration is looking into pattern and practice, the importance of creating a paper trail. File that police report, document so that when uh, it happens to someone else, you may not be the beneficiary of uh, this officer being disciplined administratively, but certainly uh, you may be part of the record that is going to be ultimately set. And so it's so important to comply, survive that encounter, and then complain, file a report. Let me ask you about the DOJ. You know, so many people get excited when when it's said that the DOJ is coming in to investigate. But as we've seen in the past, um, you know, there is only so much the Department of Justice can do to correct. Yeah. So listen, I mean, we know that uh, their hands are tied. There's a very high threshold when it comes to civil rights violations. And, you know, I've been uh, talking mightily about let's let's look at the human rights. Let's look at the human rights violation, because before Mr. Floyd was a black man, he was a human being. And we have rights just on the strength of who we are in our own humanity. And when you have law enforcement officials who don't honor our humanity, who don't uh, keep us free from discrimination and and free from torture, which is what they did to Mr. Floyd, had us watch it. And thus we're traumatized and tortured as well. Then maybe we need to take this to a different court. Let's take it to the court that deals with violations of human rights. Ms. Horn, let me ask you on a personal note, uh, when you look at what you had to go through on uh, for a number of years, uh, the loss of not only a job, but the idea that you thought your pension was gone, the toll it must have taken personally, give us a sense of the stress that you felt or the stress that uh, many other officers of color may be feeling just on a day-to-day basis. The officers don't want to lose their livelihood. Um, in my case, I don't regret it because Neil Mack still lives where we saw in, in De- um, George Floyd's case, Eric Gardner's case, none of the officers did anything. So they're no longer with us. So I think that um, we need to push for officers to be able to intervene without threat of being um, ostracized or losing their livelihood. That should be something in the past that, that I definitely will see in my lifetime. I believe that I will. Well, ladies, I want to thank you uh, for coming and joining us this evening and being part of those who have uh, lived the life and have an understanding of it that uh, uh, lay people do not. And I greatly appreciate your forthrightness and, and uh, not just on this evening, but as you've gone throughout and had that clarion call to uh, alert us all. I greatly appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate you. you. Remember, if you want to join us, we'll be taking your calls in just a few moments. 866-757-0756 is the number. Press star three to be engaged. We'll put you in queue. 866-757-0756. Since the killing of George Floyd, the fight has intensified in many quarters, including the corners of the halls of corporate America. After the state of Georgia changed the laws making voting, many say, more restrict a group of top black business executives pushed major corporations to fight the new voting laws and regulations. Among that group is Ken Chenault, the former CEO of American Express. He is now the chairman of the General Catalyst of Venture Capital Fund. I sat down with him earlier this week. 
Ken, you've said in interviews that I've seen uh, that the killing of George Floyd moved you personally to get involved, particularly with pressuring business leaders to pursue the legislation move that we have seen in Georgia, uh, and by extension, probably the rest of the country, uh, where Republicans have a stronghold. Uh, what did this verdict do for you? I think what was important to me, Ed, is that it was so graphic uh, and so powerful, the helplessness of George Floyd. And I think similar to many African-Americans, I certainly had a, a friend when I was growing up who had, I think, a very promising life ahead of him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was killed uh, by the police. And the impact of that uh, was something that I still feel. And it just brought back uh, that memory. And I think demonstrated the prejudice and racism that still exists in our society. You know, the fight that you're waging uh, in terms of voter suppression and making sure that that inalienable right is given to all of us um, is interesting because it has tentacles. It's not just about voting. I mean, the idea of election really spreads throughout, um, you know, all corners and aspects. Uh, when you look at corporations, the push to get them involved uh, is how important in your mind? So one of the things I believe in strongly, Ed, is I grew up uh, in the civil rights era. And uh, I was born three years before Brown v. Board of Education. And growing up, I wanted to be a civil rights leader. And frankly, I brought that mentality uh, to my role in corporate America. And I believe firmly that corporations exist because society allows us to exist. And we have a responsibility to improve society because if we wanna grow as a company, we want a society that's healthy and is prospering. And so I think it's very important, but particularly on the issue of voting rights, the reality is that's the most fundamental right of Americans. That strikes at the heart of our democracy. And as you know, the path to voting for Blacks in America has been a torturous path. And a number of people lost their lives fighting for the right to vote. So I think that what was important, and I was encouraged as we asked companies to become involved, the fact that we were able to get over 300 companies and a combination of companies and individuals, over 700 signatories on our statement that they would publicly oppose any discriminatory legislation or legislation that restricts voting. How do we make sure that this doesn't become a blip on the radar screen, the idea of guilt from corporations or whites, um, and to make sure that this is systemic change versus just uh, we need to iron over this hiccup? 
I think what's very important, Ed, is we've got to look at this very comprehensively. One of the initiatives that I became very involved with and founded along with Ken Frazier was 110. And 110 is focused on working with Fortune 100 companies and Fortune 500 companies and eventually medium-sized companies and small businesses to, in fact, create 1 million jobs for Black Americans in 10 years. What I would hope is this becomes a model that we can do a multiple of that target within 10 years. I think what's also important is we've got to deal with the inequities in our educational system. We've also got to ensure that we're providing Black businesses with access to capital. We have to dramatically improve the delivery and quality of healthcare. We've got to improve our housing. So I think what's very important is my view is we need some form of a Marshall Plan for Black America. But it can't just be, it's just voting rights. We're not saying that. What we're saying is without voting rights, it's going to be very difficult. And the point that I make is just imagine if Black people had had voting rights in Reconstruction. We would be a very different country. When we return, we'll hear from attorney Ben Crump and NAACP President Derek Johnson. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it, your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Now we continue with the NAACP town hall meeting on justice and accountability. A very different country indeed, as we just heard, voting and politics in this fight are real. Joining us now, famed attorney Ben Crump. He, of course, represents, among other families, the family of George Floyd. And most recently, he is engaged with the family of Andrew Brown Jr., who was shot and killed by police in North Carolina. Ben, good to have you with us. So, yeah, good evening, Ben. Thanks so much. I know it's been a very busy, busy day for you. I know you've been in meetings all day long, and I greatly appreciate it. You and I just had a conversation just a few days ago. First, let me ask you. With all of the optimism we've seen, uh, President Biden last night called for the signing of the George Floyd uh, Act on the anniversary, by the anniversary of his death. How, how optimistic are you that we're going to see at least that happen? Well, Ed Gordon, you know, you have breaking news because we spent the whole day on Capitol Hill at the Hart Building with the United States uh, Senators who are negotiating what will be this historic George Floyd Justice and Policing Accountability Act. Um, and we have not given any interviews intentionally because we thought it was important that the senators uh, give remarks about what they felt the meetings uh, were like with these family members who blood will be on this legislation, Ed. We met with uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer this morning. Peter Jackson Lee was present. We then met with uh, Senator Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham, who uh, obviously are uh, Republicans who have taken the leadership on this particular legislation for their party. We then met with Senator Cory Booker, uh, who is leading the effort uh, from the Democratic side. We then met with Senator Dick Durbin, 
who is uh, the Senate Judiciary Chair for the uh, Senate. And then we met with Congresswoman Karen Bass, who has been the uh, heart and soul of this legislation uh, out of California. And everybody, everybody felt that there was momentum to pass meaningful legislation to hopefully prevent some of these just horrific, unjustifiable deaths. And we had with us George Floyd's brother, Bologna's Floyd, Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, uh, Dr. Tiffany Crutcher, the sister of Terrence Crutcher, and the convener of the 100-year anniversary of the Black Wall Street massacre out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we had Botham Jones, sister, who is uh, the young man who was in his own apartment and the police woman uh, allegedly came into the wrong apartment, shot and killed him, and then claimed self-defense. And when they told their stories, especially to Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham, it was very emotional. It was very engaging. And they left there very certain that those senators felt their pain. So obviously there's optimism with all of that happening, particularly with the Republicans that you met with, Ben. But I must say, there's also a level of frustration we can't turn away from. I saw it in the press conference that you and Bakari Sellers uh, held the other day in North Carolina. Give me a sense of how you want people to look at this, because as optimistic as they may be. We continue to see shootings and deaths around, uh, you know, almost daily. Yeah, and it was troubling, Ed Gordon, because you and I and uh, Felonis talked the day of the yeah. verdict, with the historic verdict, uh, where Derek Chauvin was convicted guilty, guilty, guilty on every count, second degree, third degree, and manslaughter for killing, torching his brother, George to death on May 25th, 2020. But then, even during the trial, Ed, 10 miles away, there was another unarmed black man, uh, Dante Wright, who was killed by a white police woman who allegedly was trying to pull her taser, pull the gun, and shot and kill Dante. And then after that, you saw Micaiah Bryant in Columbus, Ohio. And then, literally, hours after that, uh, the verdict came. Micaiah was killed two hours after the verdict. And then about 13 hours after the verdict, you had Andrew Brown in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, be killed by police sheriff's deputies running with assault rifles. Right? His car was going away, shooting at him. That was akin to a lynch mob. And they shot him uh, with a bullet to the back of his head killing him. And we still have not seen the video because it has not been released to the public. And that is troubling because with all this momentum, we think we're turning the corner, but yet we see that this uh, intellectual justification of discrimination is still real, Ed. That's why we got to pass this legislation. We got to keep mobilizing, strategizing, and organizing because that's the only way, and nobody does that better than the NAACP. 
Ben, before I let you go, I want you to speak to that specifically. There is a lot of frustration that that video has not been released um, and that there is concern when they put the 30-day implementation on it that that allows them to kind of shore up some things um, and there's some legalities to that 30 days. So what would you like to see people do in terms of pressure and making sure that police can't hide behind some of these rules, laws, and regulations that allow them to sit on a video like this? Well, we need them to write their senator and engage their senator because this uh, issue is specifically addressed in the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act that a body cam video must be part of every uniform, or every police officer's standard uniform, and that that video must be made transparent within 48 hours unless there is some compelling reason beyond what they always give us, uh, Eric Gordon, and that is that <laughs> we're it's an ongoing criminal investigation. Well, we know those investigations have gone forever. Laquan McDonald, yeah. I mean, that video it's so clear what happened, but yet they let it drag on for a year. So this is what we're battling, and this is what people can do. We can federalize this so we won't have arbitrary laws state to state. Where they are literally trying to hometown us. Well, Ben Crump, I know you've had a long day, uh, and I appreciate you, as you always do with me, uh, making time and joining us on this uh, so very important town hall meeting. Thanks, Ben. Greatly appreciate it. Hey, thank you, and thank you to Derek Johnson, NAACP, Ed. All right, thanks. We are all concerned about policing injustice. The fight has been going on for a long time, and the energy given since the murder of George Floyd has not been matched since the height of the civil rights movement. Since the Chauvin verdict, questions of a sea change or an inflection point are being raised. Joining us now to talk post-verdict, are Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP, and Jelani Cobb, Columbia School of Journalism professor, an author, and frequent contributor to many national media outlets. Gentlemen, I thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to ask you all just a, a quick question to you first, uh, Derek, and then we're going to get to some phone calls and then have uh, Jelani weigh in as well. So one of the things, Derek, I'd like you to speak to is the same thing that I've been asking all of our guests tonight, and that is the optimism. Uh, you know, where where does your needle sit when we look at um, getting this law enacted? And more importantly, um, what do you think that changes in terms of the course of the rank and file in the day-to-day? Well, first of all, thank you, Ed, and um, thank you, Jelani, for joining us. Anytime you're talking about legislation, whether it's state or federal, uh, your optimism should be after the law is passed and once you read it fine print and the detail. Uh, you know, legislation is the art of compromise, and we must make sure that the substance of the law meet the title of the law. And that's really important. I am glad to see that Congresswoman Karen Bass have been masterful in stewarding this process to ensure that the House passed the act without going through the rigors of another committee process in a new uh, Congress. I am optimistic that uh, Senator Booker is on the other side of that to receive it, to make sure the integrity of the intent behind the law is intact. Uh, But with all that in place, there is still this tension because it is the process of coming up with language that could satisfy uh, at least 51 members uh, to pass. 
And so my optimism will be once passage and I see the fine print, but I am comfortable with the process so far. Uh, I, I'm appreciative of the level of detail and attention that has been paid uh, on this particular act by the administration, by uh, the House led by Congresswoman Bass, and by Cory Booker in this moment, the senator from New Jersey. Uh, because out of that, there is a sincere interest and an outcome to hold police officers accountable. What we must do is make sure that we can uh, uh, establish some trust in law enforcement agencies to keep our community safe. For far too long, for decades for that matter, that has not been the case. And so as we go down this path, we're working really hard to make sure we end up where we need to be so we don't have another generation who are being targeted, harmed, or killed by law enforcement officers. Let me say to those of you who are on hold in queue uh, on the phone calls, I'm going to ask Jelani Cobb a question, and then we're going to get right to your questions. Jelani, let me ask you, um, we should note that this bill, uh, if it be, or this act, if it becomes a bill, is not a panacea. What more would you like to see beyond this bill in terms of showing systematic change that we've been fighting for, quite frankly, for years and years, decades, and some will argue hundreds of years? Well, I mean, I think. There, what, what winds up in the bill ultimately is still you know, to be determined. Uh, one of the things that we don't know is what the fate of qualified immunity will be. Uh, and so yeah. uh, depending on whether or not that winds up in the bill, that may be something that we want, uh, something that we're pushing for. And that's simply uh, saying that police don't have a kind of blanket immunity, even for when they're committing uh, wrongful acts. Uh, and they are encouraged and incentivized to behave with the kind of impunity because they know that there won't be legal or at least not civil consequences uh, for their actions. Uh, but one of the other things that we have to say is that we've talked about criminal justice, we've talked about police reform in the um, aftermath of George Floyd's death. But when we looked at what happened to Mr. Floyd, it was really stripping bare the facade of a whole array of other institutional relations. He was unemployed. Uh, he was a person who had been infected with COVID-19 and uh, survived. Uh, what we are looking at is a wholesale uh, re need, a need to reevaluate our relationships to these broader institutions. So when we're, we want to address the uh, criminal justice issue, I always point out we will never have a point at which we have healthcare disparities, employment disparities, housing disparities educational disparities, but pristine policing. The policing is a symptom of a broader set of institutional relationships. And so we're going to have to tackle all of those things. But when we're talking about a living minimum wage, that is integral as integral to us addressing these issues about police violence as the legislation that we're talking about right now before Congress. Yeah, the, the import of that statement, uh, Jelani, can't be overstated. You're absolutely right. If we only look at this as a singular issue, we're missing the point. Let, uh, let me go to the phone calls. Uh, Abba, I understand we've got a number of calls. So if you can open uh, up one of them to us. please. Yes, we have Belinda in uh, Slidell, Louisiana. Belinda, go ahead with your question. Belinda, okay, go ahead with your 
Okay, how about now? All right, can uh, can you ask your question for us? Yes, my, my right, concern let me go- is, has there been talk about a Citizens Oversight Committee? Okay, Citizens Oversight Committee. So we should note that that isn't specific to the George Floyd Act, but Derek, you know that the Citizens Oversight in many uh, states and cities has been one of those things that local jurisdictions uh, have in, in, in indeed implemented throughout. You know, the problem with citizen oversight committees, they're uneven. They change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. The level of teeth those commissions have vary wildly. What we need is a federal standard, a federal floor, to hold law enforcement officials accountable to a standard of protecting and serving, but not causing harm and killing. That's really important. And you cannot do that if there's no accountability. That's why. The question of qualified immunity is so key. That's why 242, whether or not the, the, the standard of review of how you hold officers uh, criminally liable becomes really, really important to, to make sure that there is a federally, federal registry that's public facing so that officers who are bad actors cannot jump from agency to agency uh, if they're, they're dismissed. In Minnesota alone, under their arbitration state laws, even if Derek Chauvin uh, was found innocent, although he was fired, there was a strong likelihood he would have been reemployed by the Minneapolis Police Department. 50% of all those who are terminated by the police chief or the city are reinstated because of the state's arbitration law. Uh, citizen review boards won't change that. We need a, a federal standard that applies to all 50 states to protect people and protect communities. Yeah, and that is uh, quite important to note that we have seen officer after officer just bounce around to department after department. Okay, Abba, who do we have next? Uh, we have Kenneth in Orlando, Florida. Kenneth, go ahead with your question. Yes, thank you. It's more of a statement, uh, and I want to thank all of you for what you do. However, I just feel like we have not organized the black community into the force that it needs to be. Uh, we are doing a lot of things. We have a lot of organizations. However, we have not really, really organized to the point that we are, not all of us will be on the same um, wavelength, but to the point that we have not harnessed the resources. We have. HBCUs, we have millionaires, we have billionaires, we have $1.3 trillion, and we have not harnessed those resources to transform our community. I'll hang up and listen to you. Let me just say this. I'm, I'm a historian, and uh, you know, Brother Johnson here represents the NAACP. That organization came into existence in 1909, when we were the, we were still the majority of our population had been had knew what it felt like to be enslaved. We have been fighting this beast with all the resources that we have available to us from the second we hit these shores. And I was just on a call. I can't divulge who I was talking to because it's a sensitive position, but I was just on a call 
interviewing someone about what was going on in one of the high profile cases that involved an African-American being shot by a police officer. And this person said, this person's in a sensitive political position, said that they had to react the way that they reacted because they knew that there were going to be Black people in the streets. One of the things that's, has, that's happened in the recent years is that we've seen all of these high-profile shootings of Black people by police. Now, I'm going to say something that's probably shocking. We don't talk a lot about this a lot. In the United States, the police kill a heck of a lot of white people each year, an astounding number compared to white people in European countries, other Western countries. The only community that you see organizing to fight against a widespread societal problem that disproportionately, but not exclusively, disproportionately affects our community, the only group that you see fighting this big American plague of police violence is us. You know, Eric, I, let I, me I, let I, you I, uh, chime I, in there I briefly. Jump in there. We have to move away from this deficit mindset of what we're not doing, what we can't do, what we haven't do, when in fact we're sitting in the evidence of what we have done and what we continue to do. This is a systemic societal problem that's supported with public policy that goes back not decades, but centuries. And so we are advancing the ball. You know, you think about 30 years ago, it was Rodney King. Up until that point, it was denial from elected officials, policymakers across the board that what we had been saying for decades was true. It was caught on camera. And as we would continue to progress and fight in the courts to make sure African-Americans were in positions of authority or agencies, Ed, you and I from Detroit, you know what it was like when we had the big four in stress and how Homer Young had to come in and change the reality of how policing was done. I am a benefactor of police athletic lead. I'm a benefactor of police cadet because we had to change the relationship between law enforcement officers and communities and those law enforcement officers were black. So if I got in trouble, I could pick up the phone and call Benny Napoleon, who was lieutenant over my area. I could pick up the phone and call me to Officer Conway. It was a sea change compared to what exists. So we must stop talking from a deficit mindset and recognize the progress that we are making as we continue to fight because freedom is a constant struggle. Abba, let's uh, try to get in a couple more if we can as we are up against the clock now. Uh, yeah, we have Latanya from Atlanta, Georgia. Latanya, go ahead with your question or your comment. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can, we can hear, hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Actually, I like to make several quick uh, statements. First of all, I love the police. Okay, okay, okay. Let me just say that I love the police. To me, there is nothing greater than someone who willingly runs towards danger, you know, when someone calls. So I just wanted to get that out the way. But also, I want to say that I feel as though police need to be, first and foremost, in the best physical condition. I believe that they need to be trained better and thoroughly trained. I also believe that there should be a national hotline. When police do something to citizens or if citizens feel like police did something inappropriately, it should be a hotline that they could call. And people need to be tracking those calls and investigating those calls, especially if they're coming from a, a specific police department constantly. That's when I feel as though they need to send un undercover police officers in. 
Also, um, I think that when things like that happen as well, I think those police officers need to go against a community board. I believe the, the community needs to get together and the police officers should have to come before them and plead their case because that's who they work for. They work for the citizens. All right, thank you for those comments. Short period of time. <laughs> you, did, you did get it all out. We're proud of you. Thank you so much, um, Derek. We should note that some of that, uh, again, as we talked about, has been tried on uh, some of statewide basis. Oftentimes, you know, m- local municipalities have taken some of that. It just we've not seen it nationally. Yeah, if you go to certain communities. You see a different standard uh, standard relationship between law enforcement officers and those communities. You see investment in in the 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 agency so they can have they can set up the best service possible. Uh, they incorporate opportunities for social workers to identify and work in communities that are based in trauma. They invest in mental health support. They invest in after school programs. They invest in in, in, in community police relationships. Those are healthy uh, standards that you can see peppered across the country. What has not happened uh, in, in far too many African-American communities, that investment is lacking. They use our tax dollars directed towards other communities so they can have that standard. What we are pushing now is a federal standard, so that's the reality across the board. One community should not feel comfortable and safe, and the neighboring community feels less safe, and they're part of the same jurisdictions because in that jurisdiction, everyone is paying their fair share of tax. So we have to have a different level of relationship standard and appreciation for those who are willing to put their lives at risk and are good cops compared to the bad apples that need to be taken out of commission and in many cases put behind yeah. bars with criminals that they are, like the criminals that they are. Yeah. Abba, next caller. Yes, we have Ramona in Texas. Uh, Ramona, go ahead with your question. Um, My question is, I think that we need a diversity training done for all officers each year. I've had several jobs where we had to implement that, and it did work. And also, I would like to also say, when it comes down to going in and filing paperwork uh, against an officer, that should be logged in somewhere because we've had a case where we went and we filed the paperwork and no one ever said that we filed anything at all. And also it is really crazy how correctional officers are held accountable for use of force without even loss of life, whereas a policeman with a gun can get off for a little bit of anything. And I think it just really doesn't make any sense that and we I, should I, note, though, even with it. correctional officers, th- thanks for your comment. We should note, uh, even with correctional officers, that is usually state oversight, um, sometimes county oversight. But uh, Jelani, let me ask you, when she brings up diversity training, one of the things that I remind people is in some of these instances, it's not lack of training. It's not the lack of understanding diversity. It is that you can't legislate hate um, and prejudice out of a person in that way. We have too many police officers. We just saw in 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago when we saw white supremacists who intentionally went into police work to make sure that they could wear that badge and with impunity, um, you know, uh, ravage uh, people of color. We should note that that is 
hard to legislate out. It's hard to legislate out. And the other part of it about diversity training is that a lot of times uh, these are diverse departments. You know, you know, when Sean Bell was killed in, by the NYPD, there was a black officer present. Uh, when Eric Garner was killed, there was a black officer present. When Walter Scott was killed, there was a black officer present. Uh, and so uh, in and of itself, the diversifying the police department and even training the departments in terms of handling diversity uh, doesn't necessarily deliver the kind of change that you want. So one of the things that you have to have is a system, systematic rethinking of the kinds of sticks and carrots, the kind of consequences that uh, will uh, visit uh, an officer or a department if they don't function correctly. Uh, the NAACP, uh, early in its history, got behind something uh, called the Dyer Anti-Lynching Bill, uh, and that was 1922 or so, and that the Dyer Bill uh, had a idea that they would impose a penalty on any county where a lynching took place and the police did not intervene to protect the life of that person who was lynched. If we had something similar, saying that for good departments, we're going to fund you in this way, but when there are wrongful incidents and when there's systemic rot, you're going to pay for this out of your budget, this comes out of your pocket, that presents a disincentive for the kinds of problems that we've seen before. Uh, Abba, let's go to one more if we can. Uh, yes, we have Mario in uh, New Jersey. Uh, Mario, go ahead with your question. Thank you very much. And to everyone and to my president, Johnson, and to, uh, to everyone that's listening. Um, worked in law enforcement and retired, went to fire department in public safety, 27 years retired. I'm a uh, baby under the Senate decree. And one of the major things that we were seeing is the residency requirement. Um, it seems as though that's the loophole where it was a country club and it's still a country club. I retired, but I'm still involved. I wanted to know if that was is part of the George Floyd Act. If it's not, if you guys are going to amend that to make sure we get a federal um, uh, consent um, for, all, for all states, because we got a big problem with uh, residency requirements. Uh, Jelani, so, if, if you can pick up on the idea of the dissent uh, decree, but I think it's important to note what you and Derek said earlier, and I'll let you both chime in there, is that at this point, it doesn't matter what's on that paper or not on that paper, because we are now in the midst of that negotiation. We don't know what it's going to end up if indeed it's signed. Yeah, I have not seen I have not seen anything about residency requirements in the federal legislation, and I suspect that that would be something that would be handled on the state level. Uh, and, you know, that's a, just a, a, a fist fight with the police union uh, because police unions do not like that kind of legislation. Um, and, you know, I've heard I've talked with cops and, and, and heard their side of it. You know, I was on a ride along once uh, with some uh, undercover officers and one of them put on a face mask. This is pre-COVID times, uh, put on a face mask. And you know, he did so because his girlfriend lived in the neighborhood uh, that he was about to make an arrest in. And, you know, I understood why people were hesitant about that. But the, the net effect of it, I think, is that there's a bigger benefit to having police who are rooted in the communities that they're policing than there is uh, to uh, having police who are not uh, from those communities. Uh, but that's not going to be something I'd expect to see in the federal legislation. Derek, you want to chime in there? 
No, I, no, I agree. I, I don't think it will be a part of the federal legislation. Uh, you know, you have to weigh the options. I am one uh, to believe that the majority of the officers should grow in communities that they're familiar with, they're invested in, care about. And it's hard to do if you're not paying taxes in those communities, you grew up in those communities, and you're not familiar with those communities. And there has to be a balance, even if it's a percentage of the of the officers must live in the jurisdiction. Uh, there are yeah, and I should note with tax I should note that as I as I recall, uh, you know, going through uh, the act, I didn't see specific language of the dissent decree. It does mention qualified immunity limits in that specifically. And I want to close with that before I hand it over to Derek to say goodnight. And I'd like you both to address that because from what I understand at this point, as I'm looking at uh, and hearing from people, that may indeed be the sticking point. This question of whether qualified immunity is going to stand, particularly with progressives in the Democratic Party that uh, say, you know, that's a deal breaker for them if that's taken off the board. I'll start with you. Jelani, the idea of the importance of that and whether or not that should be a non-negotiable in your mind. Yeah, I think that that has to be a non-negotiable. I mean, that's really the ball part, the ball game, rather. Uh, it's it's good to have a federal registry of problematic cops. Uh, it's good to have what looks like some sort of uh, prohibition against the federal prohibition against chokeholds. Uh, we do know that despite the fact that uh, Mr. Floyd died in this way and that Mr. Garner died in this way, uh, that is not how the majority of people have died at the hands of police. Uh, and these are going to be instances that involve the use of firearms very often, uh, as we've seen, the wrongful use of firearms. And without something to to counteract that on qualified immunity, uh, I just don't think you get very far. This winds up being more uh, symbolism than substance. Derek? Absolutely agree. You know, one's badge should not be a shield to accountability. How you get to accountability is making sure individuals know they cannot operate above the law. Uh, and so it, it, it must be a deal breaker. Now, the form of qualified immunity, how it's rolled out, that may be in the uh, negotiation, but there has to be accountability. You cannot have, account uh, have accountability if one is immune from operating in, in ways in which Others of us will be held accountable, and yet they can go to sleep at night knowing that they can kill someone and not be held accountable. Qualified immunity is a must. Yeah. Eric, before I hand it over to you, I think that we also have to make a note and an understanding. And as I mentioned, when Ben was on, I saw the frustration with the Bakari sellers and others and the, and the gentleman who was there. Uh, yelling throughout the press conference, just emoting the frustration that so many of us feel that America is going to have to understand that this pot can only boil for so long uh, before it boils over. And so one will hope that this is the beginning of a seminal moment, an inflection point, if you will, uh, that will move us uh, not to, as I mentioned earlier, a panacea or a cure-all, but certainly uh, a giant step to uh, correcting this. Jelani, uh, my friend, thank you for joining us, and I will give it to Derek as he will close us out this evening. Thank you, Jelani. Thank you. And we are at an inflection point, as Ed just mentioned. This is our Sama Alabama moment. We must decide what type of democracy we're going to live in. And in Sama, Alabama in 1964, it was a courageous act to try to force the question 
of our full participation, our ability to cast our vote, our currency in a democracy. The vote is the currency. NAACP created 112 years ago in the aftermath of systemic mob violence, black men, women being lynched in broad daylight in the town square, oftentimes with the aid and support of those who were sworn to protect and serve. What we have witnessed over the last several years is a level of mob violence that is undermining our democracy. So we're standing here now looking at Congress, the Senate, to, to be more clear, to pass something to hold people accountable so we can have the democracy that we are paying for. We're paying for it through our tax dollars. We're paying for it through our blood, sweat, and tears. We're paying for it with all of our dedication to this nation where we pledge allegiance. And now this nation owe an allegiance to the Black community, to Latinx community, to ensure that those that we fund through our tax dollars are there to protect and serve, not abuse, harm, injure, and kill unjustly. We fight to make democracy work for all, not work for all if we allow the level of police mob violence continue to exist. Thank you all for joining us this evening, and we look forward to the next Teletown Hall meeting. Remember, the fight continues. If you want to lend support to the NAACP, go to NAACP.org. We'll be back next week with our regular podcast. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Come.